You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimao of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! We are back. Can you believe it? We are back for another episode of the X-Man podcast. And I guess this is the, the return show from what I would characterize as an unintended hiatus, but a hiatus, I think that was much needed. And if you listen to my last show, you would know that Bad Wolves was on tour for about a month, pretty much the entire month of March. And I really did have the plan to do the show from the road as I've always done the show from the road. But uh, the tour <laughs> proved to be, I guess, one of the more challenging tours in terms of just logistical things that were going on and just the physical toll of it. I, w- I remember just about halfway through the tour, uh, I was just exhausted. <laughs> And then like the last week of the tour, I was sick. It was just, um, yeah, I mean, that was just the, the energy of just trying to every day make all the, the things happen that, that needed to happen every day. And at some point I I said, you know what, I really just want to concentrate on these performances and all the work that needs to be done to just make the day happen. And be present for that. And usually I would uh, do interviews with people on the tour. And especially on the first half of the tour, it just seemed like people are kind of doing their own thing. There wasn't as much socializing as a normal normal tour, given there were some COVID rules and things that were set out. Even though you know ultimately the, the bands did hang out, it, it took some warming up to that. And to some degree, I kind of felt some of the other bands were also kind of focused on their jobs and I didn't want to impose on anyone. So, so yeah, I just said, you know what? I'm just going to ride this out. And then there was a kind of secret reason why (laughs) I didn't put out any shows during the, um, during the tour. And I guess when the week that that I got back, what, which was I had my 200th episode coming up. I'm only a few away. And I didn't have a guest for the 200th episode. And you guys know if, if I'm doing 100 or 50 or 150, and now 200, I'd like to have someone a little special. And so now I've squared that away. The interview has not been done, but it is scheduled to be done. So let's not um, 
count those chickens before the eggs hatch, but that is something I wanted to to, to square away. So hopefully you guys are, are still with me. I, I, I believe, even though it's been the longest break I've taken from the show, that, you know, as long as the 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 quality is there that I think you guys would, would still listen and be okay if I take a break every every now and again. Cause you do understand I do have a day job. <laughs> and it's and, and I'll tell you the the hardest thing with doing a, a podcast is consistency. And that was definitely one thing the pandemic helped me with was getting to a, a steadier schedule, have it have things get locked in. And then once you go on tour, and I and I, and I tell you, you know, just to kind of uh backtrack a little bit to talking about the tour you know there there was definitely listen the tour went great i mean it was huge every night sold out packed all the bands were amazing i think bad wolves did very well on the tour um but kind of readjusting to that world having not done it in a couple years it's it's a different thing you know um i don't know like the the stress going into it and getting ready and kind of that, I don't know, there's a certain intensity to that environment that when you pulled away from it, you're brought back into it. It's a little, it's palpable um, because day to day, my day to day life is not that intense. There's not as much pressure Um, and that pressure of just like, you want to go out and you want to be great and you want to play great. You want to give everything. And then, something goes wrong, there's a technical issue, you feel like you've let people down. And that's a, you know, that's a, that's an energy. And so it's, it's a vibe. Uh, And I, you know, it's, I've, you know, I noticed like Parkway Drive just announced this thing where they're taking some time from the road. And I I know it's just for this uh, US tour. But, you know, and I I look at what happened with Faith No More, where Mike Patton didn't want to tour because he was dealing with some mental stuff. And, it is weird that it, when you're doing it all the time for most of your life, it becomes normalized and you're away from it. There, there's a, like this extra anxiety around the lifestyle, which, uh, which I get because touring is somewhat destabilizing or not even somewhat, it is destabilizing. And, and yeah, so, so it took me about, I don't know, a week to kind of get settled in and I'm pre- pretty settled in. I, I wanted to get uh, a show out last week, but I, I just, I got wrapped up because there's a, a, a wedding band show happening next month and I couldn't, we had a whole bunch of new songs and I couldn't uh, rehearse them when I was on the road. Rob hit me up and said, yo, you want to jam this day? And I, I hadn't learned any of the songs, so I had to go into cram mode. So even though I, I, I took about four days to, to chill out when I got home, it's been, the grind is back on, <laughs> which I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy uh, to be busy and have a lot of great things going on and that's and that's super exciting um I, I guess so far i didn't get to talk about because i wasn't didn't have a show out that there's a god forbid reunion show happening in september at the blue ridge rock festival in virginia <laughs> and yeah so i'm sure many of the listeners probably already know about that but if you don't glad you're hearing hearing the news finally uh, right now, it's just this one show. There's some talk about maybe some adding some other shows. We will see. But yeah, so it, it's been a long time coming. Of course, many of the, the, the show listeners have asked and people, for as long as I can remember since leaving the band, people always want to know if we were going to do something. So 
a great opportunity came about and it should be really, really great. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Been uh, kind of early in the, in, in the preparations for that because uh, Bad Wolves will be doing another tour around that time. So I have a lot of coordinating to do, uh, but it's exciting. It's fun playing those songs. They're, they're burrowed into my DNA. So you know, even if I don't play them for a long time, it, it comes back pretty uh, intuitively and, and, they're, and they're just fun to play. So I'm looking forward to that. What else? What else did I miss? I miss Slapgate, <laughs> the Will Smith slapping Chris Rock. You know, everyone, it's one of those things everyone, you know, needs to have an opinion on. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious Will Smith's in the wrong. Don't don't hit people to solve your problems unless they hit you. It's that simple. <laughs> it, this ain't that deep. Uh, don't hit people unless they hit you and you're defending yourself. Pretty, pretty simple. That's what children do. And the playground, and you, you took my blocks and you hit them and then the baby starts crying and the teacher's got to come in and break it up, you know. So I'm not going to get into it because I feel like it's old news now, even though I did slightly get into it. So, yeah, I don't think I'm trying to think what else is, is going on. Uh, yeah, Bad Wolves is playing next month at we're playing in May at Lunatic Luau. Another show in Virginia, but that's something like Virginia Beach area. And we're playing at Welcome to Rockville, which is in Daytona Beach, Florida. So we're doing those two shows. And and yeah, so I'm but I but despite all that, I'm very busy here. I'm actually very happy to be home. We go to tons of shows. I saw Sepultura and Crowbar and Sacred Reich. I saw who else did I say? Oh, I saw Il Nino and Drowning Pool, I saw Papa Roach play this pizza place. It's been nuts. And then the Exodus Testament Death Angel show was on Sunday, but I couldn't make it to that because I, I had plans. And I'm going to be seeing some more shows. So I'm really enjoying getting out, seeing shows, enjoying the wonderful weather, even though it got a little hot in Los Angeles, but definitely glad to be home. And uh, yeah, just it's very cool. And I, I do have some excellent podcasts coming up working on some stuff, some scheduling, but I'm excited to, to get back and create some things for all you listeners. I've missed you. I hope you've missed me. All right, with that out of the way, we have a show sponsor this week. It's a band from Nashville, Tennessee. They are called Saturn Six, and this song is entitled All In. <laughs>
So that was All In by the band Saturn Six from Nashville, Tennessee. Keep in mind, the way you say it is the actual, the word six. So when you're searching it, it's Saturn and the word six. Anyway, this band is actually, they're a two-piece. So you have a singer and a multi-instrumentalist doing all the other stuff. And that and that, that boy can shred, all right? I heard some of them solos there, and I'm like, you know what, Doc Coyle has to go back to the woodshed and work on my shredding because he's making me look bad. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if you guys want to check the band out, actually, before I even get into there, uh, that is the opening track all in from their brand new EP entitled Dear Future Self. And that just came out only a couple weeks ago. So go to wherever you stream music, Spotify, Apple, YouTube, Amazon, go support the band. Tell them Doc Coyle sent you. Head over to their website, which is www.saturn6music.com. Thank you so much to them for supporting the show. And if you would like to support the show, hear your music on the X-Man, shoot me an email at thexmanpodcast at gmail.com. Remember, that's EX, or just drop me a DM. And we also have another sponsor, recurring sponsor. This is Good Company, a great show with Mr. Scott Bowling. Check this out. Hey guys, my name's Scott Bowling. I have a YouTube show called Good Company with Bowling. What's up? This is Clint Lowry from Seven Dust. Hey, what's up? This is Sonny Mayo. Hey, Ricky Rackman. And you're watching Good Company with Scott Bowling. I've interviewed bands like Limp Bizkit, Fozzy, Seven Dust, Korn. I've had Chris Farley's brother, Tom Farley, on the show. My show is kind of like a modern day Wayne's World. If you love a good interview, a good rock interview, or just any kind of interview, please, if you get a chance, check out my show, Good Company. With both. There you have it. Uh, if you're interested in Scott Show, which is fantastic, very well done. And actually, I'm getting ready to go on Scott Show, which I'm ver- looking very much too because he has such a nice set design i feel like i'm you know i'm finally going to be shot properly lit properly it's going to be very exciting but if you want to check out the show and, and keep in mind that he has a ton of great guests and we sh- we have shared a lot of great uh guests clint lowry who has been on my show and his show actually i think did his theme song which is super badass but you know like Corey taylor's been on his show all kinds of people it's amazing and go to his website scott goodcompany.com that's scott with two t's or just go on youtube you know check it out good company scott bowling search it out tell him doc coil sent you Alrighty, with all the business out of the way we have an excellent guest uh his name is john lamakia he is the guitar player for a band called candiria i don't think it's appropriate to call him an x-man right now because the band is is technically still active but not really doing anything too much right now he's working on a solo project which is very very badass he was in a band called spilacopa um also kind of a solo project but he coordinated and collaborated with some other people he's just a guy i've known for a very very long time someone i've, I've looked to up to as a musician and you know we come from the same place but 
kind of have these divergent paths, but things always kind of come back around. And, you know, he talked to me about maybe doing the show and I was like, that would be a fantastic idea because Kenduri is one of my favorite bands, biggest influences. And I just jumped at the opportunity. So without further ado, please check out my conversation with the incredible John Lamakia. Well, thank you again for, for being on, on the X-Men. I guess, I don't know if you've encountered as an X-Men because it's Candiria still, it's still active, but not active, active, right? Right. I mean, honestly, the reason why I thought now was a good time is because technically, you know, at this point, I, I, I'd say that I'm, I'm in my head, I'm already like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of done with that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I will, I will put stuff out. Like, um, you know, I want to get all of the uh, old albums out on vinyl that haven't been put out on vinyl. I still love the idea that there are fans that um, are super, you know, excited about any kind of rare tracks there may be. So there's still, to me, there's still a life from a record label's perspective, you know, and um, someone who loves putting out vinyl and merch and stuff like that. Um, but as far as like getting together with the guys and jamming, there's really no one besides Mike to get together with, really. Yeah. Um, Ken, you know, as you know, has been in LA for a long time. He's doing mm -hmm. his own thing. Uh, Carly is working full time. I forget what he does right now, but he's pretty busy um, living his own life, um, doing his thing. And uh, my drummer, my most recent drummer, Dan, you know, he has a family now. He has a full time job, and uh, and Julio, my guitar player, as well. So there really is no band to really sort of do anything with. And and on top of that, I'm doing my thing right now. So I, I thought this was a good time to hit you up and see if it was, you know, I thought it was a good time to come on on this podcast for that. For sure, for sure. I mean, uh, it's funny what you're saying about, about the band and I find as time moves on, um, bands are almost, bands are a privilege, <laughs> you know? Uh, to be able to like get in a room with human beings and uh, you know in the in the old school sense you know um, you know just because it's it's expensive uh, you need to move gear you need you know schedules I remember I was doing I was doing the cover band with Ken out here and just like getting one rehearsal because this person has a family or this person works weird hours was was just so much and and that and the older we get the more complex our lives become and the more difficult it is to just, you know, I'm God forbid I was in high school when we rehearse and we would literally hang out at the rehearsal studio every, like all weekend, even when we weren't rehearsing, like we had nothing else going on. <laughs> I know it's so true, man. I'm, I'm like, I'm literally like, whenever I ask the people I'm playing with now, if they can rehearse and they're all like, yes, yes, yes. And I'm like, I can't believe this. <laughs> Like they show up, I'm, I'm blown away by it. And I'm, I'm very, um, I'm excited too, because it seems to be like what I have going on right now seems to work for everyone that's in, in involved in the, in the project. So it seems, it seems easy, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not a, like a real difficult thing for anyone. So, um, well, well, let's, let's talk about that real, real, real quick. Um, I, your new project or band, it's called La Machia. So your, your name, is it, you know, you're, you're mentioning band members, but um, should it be perceived as a solo venture? It should definitely be perceived as a solo venture. But I am fortunate enough to have incredible musicians playing with me live and who also contributed on the record. 
Um, so yeah, it is, I wrote all the music. It's my effort. It's my, my solo endeavor. I, you know, I worked on all the artwork, I, you know, it's all me making everything happen. But at the same time, when it came to like, who's playing bass on, on most of the record, it's Mike McGuire, you know, and I'm very blessed to have him doing that. Uh, and then Kelly Scott from failure actually played drums on the, on the album. So wow. it's like all these people contributed and, um, are contributing to the live experience, but, but it is, it's a solo project. Um, at this point, I mean, I mean, it's so, it's so funny. My, my connection to you, um, uh, individually, but you know, collectively how that, uh, refers to Candiria, I have this personal connection, uh, to you. And I'm kind of, kind of draw the line between, I guess, how I know you and, and, and what's going on now in that the first hardcore show I ever went to Candiria headlined, it was that show. I think Manville Elks Lodge. And I remember all the band. It was Candiria, For the Love of, Train of Thought, Clubber Lang, Blood Rust, and this band Navi. I still know all the all the bands. But it was it was so it changed my life that show. You know? Um, but that was nineteen ninety eight, right? And so you think about that, so it's two thousand twenty-two. <laughs> so it's almost twenty-five years. Um but it, even though we were obviously much, much younger people, then we're still kind of connected to this world of music. There's something that still draws someone like you in to want to put all this time and energy into this art and still make it like a big, big part of your life. So what, what still keeps you tied in to this level of commitment? You know, honestly, I think, um, well, there's two two parts to that. Um, from a creative aspect, uh, for me, it's my way of, it's like my therapy. I mean, music, writing music is really how I kind of deal with like gr grief and loss and like hard times and, you know, like difficult experiences. Um, I don't think I'd be as, as, as happy a person I'd, or, or as, um, I don't think I, I, I feel bad for people that, that struggle with, with like, um, I'd say like, um, I don't know, any kind of mental disorder or mental illness or, or even short-term mental illness, like um, because of, you know, loss of a loved one or the death, a death in a family or things like that. Um, I feel bad for people that don't have some type of outlet to express themselves, a way to express themselves so they could like get that out, you know, out from inside of them and put it out in the world and make something beautiful out of it. And I think that I'm very fortunate to be able to write songs, write music and um, play them, perform them. I think it really truly does help me as a person. Um, the second part of it is, um, is other people's, I guess the, the, the fact that like people come along and they wanna be a part of it, they wanna help, you know? And they give me, they encourage me and they give me confidence and they say, why aren't you? Do a perfect example is this whole solo project thing it was really Frank Godla who, you know, while Candiria was active, he asked me, he's like, why aren't you, why aren't you doing your solo music though? Like, what's, what's the deal there? Why aren't you out there playing your solo music? Your solo music is great. And he, he had this whole like pep talk with me and he like really pretty much convinced me like, wow, I should be doing this. You know, this is Frank Godla. This guy loves music more than pretty much anyone I know. Um, so he was like, I want to be your drummer. I want to, I want to do all the production stuff. Um, it didn't last, but it did. That was the situation for a minute there. 
Um, but it inspired me to like, be like, yeah, why the hell aren't I doing my own shit? You know? And so that's really, at least right now, that's what kind of like put a flame under my butt to do this. But I think it just is always is something I'm going to do. I mean, much like yourself. I mean, this is like, it just makes me so happy. It's the one thing in my life that like, I can truly say that like, I've always had this healthy relationship with, um, and, uh, and, and it still feels good. It still saves me. It still, it still makes me feel, it still, I still feel like, um, I'm, I'm like, you know, making an impact on some people's lives, even if it's just a few people. Yeah. Um, how, how has the balance been? Um, cause I don't know, like as far as your, your day job or how you pay the bills is, are you doing that through creative work or you you have like a, a day job I, and i feel bad that i actually don't already know this <laughs> but uh but but it, it, you, have, you have another profession that kind of keeps us going or pretty much is has it been creative endeavors that uh keeps you um, it's interesting living. you say that because what i do is in a sense totally related to you know music and art and i, I do production work i do mm -hmm. i'm a stagehand basically i do like events so i build stages I do like uh, even corporate events. I do lighting, audio, stages, and I do I do stuff like that all over New York City, out out to Jersey. I go out to Connecticut and work. I go all over, and uh, it keeps me pretty busy. And I, it's funny because I don't know why I haven't been doing this for like the past twenty years of my life. <laughs> I just picked it up like five years ago by chance. A friend of mine, my friend Matt, hired me to do a show, a comedy show, at uh, King's Theater in Brooklyn. My friend Matt Brown. Um, and uh, I did the one gig and he was just another person. I was like, why aren't you doing this? Like you, you have, you know, look at the background you have with music and audio. You've been on stages. You don't need to know much more than you already know in order to do stagehand work, you know? So that kind of got my brain working. And then it turns out I know like so many people that do this. I know dozens of people in the music industry that do this. Um, Mitz from Madball, uh, uh, my buddy Joe from Silvertomb, like there's just so many people I could just name so many names. And um, it wasn't easy. It, was, it wasn't difficult for me to pick up steady work. And I, I still do. I still do. I work all the time. And the great thing about it is it's flexible. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm freelance. So I, they hire me. And if I can, if I can do the gig, I do it. If I can't, I'm just like, nope, I'm not, I'm not available. So it allows me to be, to really, if I want to um, take time off and, and do some shows, uh, spend, you know, hours and hours doing podcast interviews or recording music or, you know, making videos. I have that flexibility. That's great. That's great. Yeah. We all, we'll have to find different things that, that work for us because, um, especially like there's one kind of consistent idea with, within this show is individuals like myself and you, where we have a kind of our main band when we're young people and we put everything into that and for whatever reason it doesn't work out and then we have to figure out what the hell <laughs> how the hell we're gonna pay bills or figure out if we're gonna quote unquote grow up and 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 that process is always you know in some ways it's different for everyone but it's actually amazing how consistent um these themes are with with uh what it takes especially at, at, a, at a young age when you're trying to just do anything with your art and with your band and your it's you against the world and every and and when that kind of rubber meets the road and I guess for you guys that that phrase actually has an even a bigger <laughs> implica implication we'll get getting that in in a little bit but um I'm just always amazed when I see people 
just continue to work and put out art that's significant. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about about this record. I, I got to listen to it a little bit yesterday. And I was checking it out, and like the first couple songs were more kind of, I don't know, almost felt like in the alt rock kind of vibe, and then it got more um, electronic, a little more moody, and then I, that's when I started to really connect with the record with with those those more. I think track four almost felt something like a modern Radiohead type thing. And I, that was really, really exciting. What was the vibe? Is this stuff that just kind of came out the way it came out? Or did you have like a vision? Um, well, you know, I mean, I think the one thing that, you know, I have to just say, like, you know, the pandemic was really um, as uh, obviously as, as terrifying as it was, it also, you know, pretty much everything in the world stopped. So yeah. I just was able to really just write and be creative. But I was also um, kind of put in a position where like, you know, we, we weren't going to get, I wasn't going to get in a room with people and, and write songs that way, you know? So I, I had to like write music, anything, any way, shape or form I could. And, and that's why it's such a sort of um, this sort of, there's these almost like these three different vibes in the album. There's like a, a rock vibe, like an alternative sort of vibe. And then there's like this electronic vibe. And then there's almost like an acoustic ish sort of mellow vibe. Um, and that's just because I can only do so much of each, you know, because of the, the circumstances. Um, so it wasn't really planned. There wasn't a vision to do this or that. It was really just um, in the end of the day, these were the songs that made the most sense, that, that had a similar theme or, or a, a, like a, um, a lyrical theme that fit for what I was going through at the time. Um, and uh, and I felt these were the strongest songs, and um, that's really what it boiled down to. There was a couple of other pieces of music that I was trying to get on the record, but I like they were they were like live band sort of sort of like songs that I just couldn't figure that out because it was you know because of the circumstances. Have Have you always been kind of a, a home recording, home studio kind of type guy? Sure, absolutely, man. I love it. That's what I do, man. I mean, right now it's really weird because since I put this record out. I haven't, I, I, I sit there and I question myself a minute. I'm like, am I, am I okay? I haven't recorded anything in weeks. It's weird. Um, but, you know, I'm not in that mode right now. I can't be. I'm in the mode, I'm like in performance mode. Like, you know, yeah. I, have, I have a band. I want to put on a really great live show. I had to really build my, my vocal strength up and, and my, my pitch and just get that right. Yeah. So I really, my focus is different, but it's still, it's still sort of filling that sort of, you know, creative void so to speak that i need to fill or, or else i'll feel like a crazy person yeah it's a, it's a, it's it's definitely a different mode and and coming out of the pandemic i'm sure for a lot of us it was all record right record right and then now i just got off tour and just all the work building up to it being on it i'm just like out of shape <laughs> <laughs> it's a different it's a different muscle yeah no totally it is it is it's so weird man um but they're both really great. It, it, it's interesting because they both need the same type of attention. Yeah. I think recording, you know, you really, it's, it's a different approach. It really is. And then when you get in a room and you try to perform it live, it's different. There's just more space around you. So the vocal, like everything feels different. These little, like, um, these little differences in sort of how the process is basically just, just makes the challenges slightly different, you know? Yeah. Um, but I, but I'm really, I'm really fortunate, man. I've had, um, you know, Mike, my bass player, Mike, who you know for many, many years as well, 
I mean, he's just been this constant support system for me through this whole thing. And he's, I mean, there was a time when it was just me and him in a room with like drum tracks playing through speakers and we're just playing to that. And he's just, you know, giving me the time I need to build my voice and get the guitar sounds right. And finally come up with a way to like run backing tracks if we need them, the electronic beats and all of that stuff. Like all these little things needed to be worked out. And he was, he was there for me to just help me figure out how to do it all. So I think those those types of like when those people are in your life, man, you're, you're, you're like you said, it's like a privilege, you know, it's true. Well, you you have quite the Rolodex. I, I, I like all the quotes you got. It's like Julie Christmas. And then this this important person. I'm like, he he knows people that know people that know people. <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that because <laughs> there was, that came up. You know, that came up. They were like, you know, should we do something like this for the bio? And at first I was like, man, I don't know. Are my fucking friends just going to fucking joke on me for this? Is, is Will from Dollar going to be like, yo, what the hell is this? But you know what? Julie, especially Julie, she she will she will joke on you at any given moment. She will joke on you for the weirdest shit. So I was shocked that everyone was like, yeah, of course. No, no problem. I was like, all right, I guess this is this feels right. And everybody's down with it. Um, I was a little skeptical about it, but I think it's I think it's a good thing. And, I, and I'm like, like you said, the, the Rolodex thing, I feel like I'm very lucky to have worked with a lot of the, some of the people. Um, throughout the years and to have their support as well is, is really important to me well yeah and that's a reflection of uh the respect for your your talent as well and that's it's amazing and i think a reflection of the new york kind of scene and how close-knit it is and and how it's how communal it is you know in that in that regard sure absolutely man yeah it definitely is it's and and you know it's it's funny because I think about it all the time how fortunate I am to be in this city and in this scene that at this point it's crazy how how big a scene it is and how there are actually there are scenes like within scenes or or like there's like i think of the hardcore scene i think of like my people my age group i think of the guys from madball i think of hoya and like freddie and i think of like drew stone and all these people that i know and that kind of grew up with but if you talk to a 20 year old about the hardcore scene i mean it's a completely whole completely different thing they may be down with like af and sick of it all and all his bands, but they're also going to knock loose shows and they know about all of these new bands like Scowl and all of these. And these bands, it's like a whole new breed of hardcore bands. And it's 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 really amazing. It's I, I think it's great. Um I at at one point I will admit I was questioning the validity of it in a way. And I, but then I was like, yo man, you know what? I'm being a dick. Old man yells at cloud. <laughs> exactly. And I was like, you know what? It's it's just a different generation do, trying to understand and trying to have the same thing I wanted to have, which was like a community of people that, you know, wanted to, you know, speak about what they felt was wrong in the world or what we needed to talk about. And, it, and it's a it's a great thing. It's a great thing to have in your life. And I'm very fortunate. I still consider myself part of the I guess I won't say I'm like part of the hardcore scene because you can get smacked up for that, for even saying that these days, I think. Um, well, maybe that's an exaggeration, but you, you know what I mean? Um, but, uh, I will say that I still kind of, um, I, I'm, I'm proud to have some history with it. And also I do sort of really, really appreciate the hardcore scene welcoming Candiria, um, through, in, throughout the early years that the band was around because it really was an important part of our, our growth. 
Yeah, I mean, it was a place for the lost misfit toys. I mean, God forbid it was the same the same way. We were just a weirdo band that really didn't have a home, but it that scene, especially I think, uh, being reflective of the kind of Northeast vibe, which was, you know, we'll we'll take your uh <laughs> your huddled masses and your weird bands that don't fit in anywhere else. And, you know, being musically diverse, racially diverse, all that stuff just seemed to fit, even if you're on a package with, you know, a bunch of bands that no, no one sounds alike. It really, it was an, an ethos that, and uh collective, like I said, that, that, that communal thing that, that brought us all together. Uh, I actually kind of want to talk a little bit about um, back in the day and a little bit with your kind of musical background, because one of the things about Candiria, and especially like, you know, talking about that show, the first show I, I saw you guys, and I I was already a fan. I already had uh, Surrealistic Madness, but it was funny at that time, they would play it on um, Monday Night Mayhem, which was a death metal show on, on WSOU. So I, I had this perception of this band as like a death metal band. And then she saw you guys headline at a quote unquote hardcore show. And then it was, and at that time, I can't remember if uh, if reasonable beyond a reasonable doubt was out yet, but there was this perception, especially seeing you guys live, that there was all these other bands who were playing hardcore, metalcore, whatever, and you guys, we felt the perception that these were real musicians, <laughs> you know, because you had these jazz sections, mathematically complex parts that were so tight you were the tightest band i i had ever seen you know for quite some time i felt like you're you had the reputation as being the tightest band in the scene um what was the the musical background of the individuals were were you guys school did you guys go to school or is this just something that developed of its own accord um i personally took lessons for i'd say about four private lessons for about four or five years that's yeah. my that was all the only sort of uh, music education that I, I personally got. I took lessons from a couple of really good, sorry, cat butt in the way. Bambi, come on. <laughs> um, I took private lessons for four or five years. Um, I know Mike also took lessons. Um, Ken, you know, I'll be honest with you. I, I'm, you know what? I'm going to just go on the record and saying that I think all members of the band, except for Carly, took um, private lessons. And that's, that's it. Um, there was no like no one. I don't think anyone went to any kind of school or anything like. Yeah. Could be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure that's just the way it went down. Like we all took private lessons. Um, uh, besides that, I think really the thing was our curiosity about different types of music. I think we all came up. I came up in a, in a household where, you know, my dad would play music like um, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and um, he would play like lots of R&B and soul, and he would always talk to me about the different the different musicians, like different guitar players and different drummers. And he was really in tune with that kind of stuff. So I got a really good head start as far as that is concerned. Um, but I think um, early on, uh, we were into like a lot of fusion, a lot of um, odd time signatures stuff, like even even groups like Yes and King Crimson um, really shed a lot of light on, on, at least onto me personally, about like playing in different time signatures and writing in different, like writing different ways, writing progressive music as opposed to like songs that consisted of verses, choruses, and bridges, etc. Yeah. Um, 
So I think that was it. And then Ken himself, I mean, Ken was just a, he's a Martian, as you know, like that guy. <laughs> um, and he, uh, he spent um, many, many, well, I'd say he spent, I can't tell you what years he started recording music, but I know in the very early years when he started playing drums and he got his hands on a, on a four track recorder, I think he has recorded, I mean, I think it could be potentially close to a thousand songs that that dude recorded um, to his younger years, sitting in his basement, just making, he would make entire guitar albums. He would make entire albums based on the bass. And he would, I mean, I'm not even joking. Like the amount of music that guy has recorded is pretty, pretty insane. Um, I tried to talk to him about releasing it all one day, but I, I don't know if he is capable of because it was all on like four track and eight track cassettes. So I'm not sure that transferring that is going to be an easy task. Um, but uh, that really is it. Everybody's basically took lessons, self-taught, and then just got into rooms and just were like obsessed with music and a specific style of music. And then Ken being such a talented musician, it's almost like when you play with people that are more talented than you, like you, if you're, if you're, if you're not, I mean, look, you gotta be really, you could kind of not be nearly as good as Ken and still play in a band with him and he'll make you look like a phenomenal musician. <laughs> I think that's really the case because he can, he's such an intense player. Yeah. All you want to do is keep up. If you can keep up, he's going to make you look like one of the best musicians on the fucking planet. Um, but you know, then again, like Mike can hold his own. Mike is a really fucking extremely talented bassist. You know, um, Eric Matthews is an incredible fucking guitar player. Um, you know, I can hold my own as well. So I, you know, I think that, um, just the talent, um, the natural talent that these guys had, and then the, the, uh, the private lessons they took and the dedication and passion to all these different types of music is kind of where all of that came from. Well, you have to keep in mind, though, when I first saw you, and I guess I'd say for the first couple of years I was watching you guys, there was no bass player. You were playing as a as a four piece, which was kind of a, I think, a, a bug out at, at the time where, and the, I remember, and sometimes you, you have to put together whether you heard something specifically or if it was like an urban legend. And and the rumor I remember hearing was, I was like, why doesn't Kander have a bass player? And it was like, because Ken plays bass on the records, or I guess Eric played bass on, on some of the records too, but that they literally cannot find a bass player good enough to be in the band. <laughs> totally true. Ken and Eric both did play bass. They they switched, you know, if, if Eric wrote a guitar part and they wanted the bass to follow the guitar part, it was an obvious choice to have Eric perform it. If, yeah. if something original was being written that had more of a connection to the drums, Ken would take over and write the bass part. You know what I mean? It was sort of like they just sort of shared the, the um, I guess they shared the tasks of getting the bass completed for the album. Um, but there's also truth in what you said about not being able to find the right bass player, because that is true. I know that before Mike came along, they tried out several bass players and just none of them were a good fit. Um, it's really a very specific style. I mean, what, what, you know what I mean? It's not your typical sort of bass playing that's on these Candiria records. It's very, um, I don't know. It's really, the, the music is so weird. I mean, like I was thinking about this the other day. I was like, no one covers Candiria songs. <laughs> because no one knows how to fucking play any of this shit and like no one can figure it out and and that's the real that's the thing i think it needed we needed someone that had a very um unique um sort of approach to 
playing in general, which Mike already does. Um, he has a very specific approach to writing and, and he has, a, he is able to connect when he does write, like say Mike writes a bass line and, and then a drummer comes in and writes a bass beat that is similar, but not exact. He will adjust the bass line to sort of interact with the kick and the snare. Like he, that's, he, that's the kind of writer he is. So I think with Mike, they, they, they saw that he had the potential to sort of, you know, basically, um, write great bass lines, but also be able to play what was already there, learn and play what was already on the records, and then, um, you know, get out there and play the live shows and kill it, you know? So um, I think that that really is it though. But it's true, man, they did try out several bass players. They did. But you you joined the band after Beyond a Reasonable Doubt was out, right? Yes, I, no, actually I joined the band in 97, right before they put out the right before they put out the record yeah. um, Chris left and they were still finishing the artwork and that's why my picture wound up in the album and they were like look we want to put your a photo of you in the record anyway um because we just want to get people get used to the fact that you were there i think what they were trying to do is lock me in yeah you're stuck thinking about it now they're like look we're putting you in this damn album you said yes <laughs> and you're doing it um so no, I'm I'm kind of interested in this idea about you joining this band that at this point had had two records out that were, I mean, absolutely singular in its uniqueness in in this scene. And at that time, for me, it was so I was so insulated. I think by the environment because things were so localized, right? Like, and for people like us. Candaria was like, like we just put the band on this giant pedestal and it was every time the band played, it was an event and people would lose their shit. And it was just, and I, and I kind of felt like those, those early records, like I look at the band as, as having these different um, chapters, right? Like to me, there's like that kind of the death metal chapter kind of before the band was subsumed with the hardcore scene. And then there's like from beyond reasonable doubt all the way through the process self-development where I feel like the band was almost, and, and, and I guess you can kind of reflect, reflect this back to me. Like it was like the band was a part band where like, it was all about the, the, the songs almost were all designed around how it featured in a live show. And so it, it was all about these parts and these grooves and leaning into that and how that kind of, kind of worked. And then when you got signed with Century Media, it seemed like, okay, now the band is graduating to this other level of like, okay, yeah, we were amazing at writing these crazy uh, proggy songs and jazz and all this craziness, but let's make it more succinct. Let's make it feel more like a song and elevate. And then there's, you know, post accident and then there's that's kind of the next the, the, the next phase but there's one thing about kind of kind of that era you know in the in the earlier records where we put you on a pedestal and it seemed very contained within this like northeast energy and i always had this thing of like it was weird where i felt like certain bands from this area that did really well in this area somehow it didn't always translate everywhere right like bands like e-town even a band like like uh life of agony or something where it seems like they'll 
they mainly do they do the best in the northeast and when it went other places something about the groove or the vibe it just and was that something you guys actually experienced actually i guess to some degree i could i could say i i experienced it with it because we did that tour the the metalinium tour oh yeah you know and yeah and you and when you get to kind of see like outside of this area mm-hmm. like this weird urban mix of insanity like was that something you guys actually experienced or am i just kind of kind of you know maybe um projecting that you know i i feel it's 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 interesting you say that because i feel like depended it really depended a lot on who we were touring with yeah like if we were on the road um oddly i think like a band like clutch for some odd reason and and this is a lot if i had to pick like if I had to like, okay, you're, you're gonna you're gonna eventually tour a clutch neurosis, you know, bad brains, this and that. Which band are you gonna do the best with? I would never think it would be clutch, but the clutch crowd, for some reason, we had such a great response with that crowd every single night. It just always, for some reason, I I think because clutch has always been like an oddball band themselves, and yeah. they they're sort of like in their own little world. Like they really do. They have their own sort of like their own culture basically and i think that sort of that just just translated with us even though our music is completely different we come off completely different we're almost completely different kinds of people in a lot of ways than than clutch are you know we're city guys they're like they're city guys too but different city or they're just they just have a different vibe a different lifestyle um but for some reason it worked it just really worked um so it really did depend on who we were on tour with and i also think it depended on on what era because i think like Thinking about like the Millennium tour, I think that was the tour that that we did. That was right after 9/11, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, yep. Right, that was a hard tour. Well, you guys were you guys weren't originally on the tour. It was, it was, uh, you know, Six Feet Under, Dimu Borgir, Napalm Death, Witchery, and I want to maybe there was one other European band or something. And because of 9/11. Uh, bands couldn't get visas and they weren't traveling. So you guys were brought on as a replacement for some of those bands. So, and I think sonically and maybe even a bit like kind of music culturally, you guys were a little bit divergent from the bands who were previously on the package and connectively with some of the other bands, which were more metal, quote unquote. Yeah, no, that was a really hard tour for us because not only did we not, I mean, you know, this crazy thing happened in New York city. And we did, there was like a lot of us that were like, how can we leave home right now? You know what I mean? Why would we want to leave? Nothing like this had ever happened before. There was never any kind of attack like this on, on American soil since, you know, Pearl Harbor. So this was like a big crazy thing, obviously. Um, and, uh, we were just all freaked out and, um, to get on the road was hard enough, but we had a record out. We had 300% density out. We had to support it. Um, and then again on the road and play shows and, uh, audience just be like nah fuck you get off the stage we don't want to hear your fucking jazz noodlings <laughs> <laughs> it was really it was kind of a, it was really upsetting it really was it was not it was not a fun tour for us by any yeah way. yeah but i i do like i do think it, it depends on who we're on the road with because i can think of um some of the early days some of the earlier stuff we did i think even the neurosis tours we we went over pretty damn well once again you have a band like neurosis they're different 
they're kind of they carved out their own niche and they like then they have a band like Candiria opening up for them I guess just the crowd having an open mind sort of like an open-minded sort of crowd in general is a little bit more accepting and like curious about different types of music so um there's another example where we went over really really well um some of the tours let me think we did a couple of we did a couple of stints with um King Diamond and Merciful Fate what (laughs) oh yeah yeah we totally did and they were both no good. <laughs> yeah, I would think I would think that'd be a little a little strange. No, but I think that it, to some degree that that speaks to the era. It speaks to that sometimes your uniqueness can work against you. Um, like that was something God forbid struggled with literally up until like two thousand three, until that whole new wave of, of American heavy metal blew up. We were in that same boat where we never quite fit in. We never totally fit in with the hardcore bands. We never totally fit in with the death metal bands. And there was no, unless we were playing with like Hatebreed, it really didn't seem like there was anywhere we 100% fit in um, until until that happened. Um, and it was interesting because not too long after that, I remember seeing you guys with 40 Below Summer. And I, th- I want to say this might have been a couple days before the accident or something, but but I remember thinking I was like, this is the best I've ever seen Candiria. Like like I was I was I remember like leaving the show feeling good for you guys because three hundred percent density I felt was like this real big step forward. And it's like, man, the band is growing. There you know things are happening, and then the accident happens, and uh, it's obviously devastating physically to many members of, of the band. And, and um, you know, I know Eric, like Eric Def, he quit the band because of his physical ailments. Yes, yes, he did. Yeah. Actually, and- he got to a point where he could just not, he still is really in bad shape. He's yeah. In, ba- in bad shape. Um, but yeah, he did leave. It was just too hard for him. You know, just, just the simple things like sitting around all the time or being in a van or, just having a guitar on his back and all of these different things, these simple things just got to be too much for him. So yeah, he did. He left because of that. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station. It was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. I feel like chocolates. Yeah! Yeah! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The Wrath of the Buzzard. P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, 
but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street. Well, you you went through some very difficult physical uh, stuff as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I broke my arm. I broke my collarbone in two places, my first rib. I broke my scapula, which is your, you know, shoulder blade. Um, Suffered a really bad head injury. Um, Yeah, all kinds of shit. But uh, yeah, and and for a minute there, I did did leave the band too, but I left because I was not happy with um, some of the decisions the band was making. You know, we were on tour with bands like Drowning Pool and, you know, no, nothing against them. It just was not, it wasn't, I was not happy being on, on those types of tours, um, playing with bands. We had this, we had this manager. I just did not feel, I wasn't feeling it. I was like, we don't fit here. You know what I mean? Like we're, we have this Kid Rocks manager. How the fuck, like, what does this guy know about us? You know what I mean? I just felt like we were like, we're at that point where we're, we're dealing with people like these big name producers, we have this big manager, we have, we're touring with bands like Drowning Pool and everybody's got these like, like delusions of grandeur and stuff. I'm like, but we're still, we're still fucking, oh, we're a band, a guy, a guy singing fucking death metal vocals. You know, I'm like, let's reel it in a little, man. And So just quick, quick question. Are you talking about after What Doesn't Kill You came out? Yeah, after What Doesn't Kill You came out, we were supporting it. Um, which first of all, at the time it was a very, what doesn't kill you was a very hard record for me to make because I still was, I still felt like there's something about this band that is so unique and so different. Why are we sort of turning our back on that? I'm not, you know, and I wasn't trying to tell the guys in the band, like, let's make another beyond reasonable doubt. Like I know everybody like Carly wanted to sing. I'm like, that's fine. You know, you want to do this and you want to do that. But like, why are we, why are we going to go hook up with this producer who, you know, is, you know, famous for like, you know, recording fucking, uh, you know, I don't know. He basically records like Breaking Benjamin and bands like, you know, a lot of pop music. A record sounds, I think at least at the time, maybe the last one sounds great too, but I, I think that is, was the best sounding record though. Oh, What Doesn't Kill You? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it sounds great. And look, man, you know, this is how I felt then. Now, yeah, I, it take it took me a long time to really live with like all of the things like to sort of process everything and understand it. Like, you know, first of all, it wasn't just about me and how I felt, you know, I mean, we all went through something extremely traumatic. Um, We had written several records in a style that, you know, we kind of basically beat into the ground. I mean, 300% density was the kitchen sink record as far as i'm concerned like we did everything you could possibly do with that kind of music without without sort of becoming a parody of 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 what we were doing you know like becoming a parody of ourselves and that's what we were doing and and ken actually said exactly that he's like because we wrote i think we wrote nearly an entire record and presented songs to carly and carly was like nope 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 he just didn't want to do it anymore you know and kenny was like you know he's like we're becoming a parody of ourselves everything you write sounds like something else. Anytime someone comes up with a new idea, we think about it and we sit there and like, you know what, this sounds exactly like that riff in this song, yeah. you know? Yeah. So um, the change needed to happen. I just thought it was, you know, if it was up to me, the change would have happened a little, it would have been less dramatic 
a shift. A little more gradual. Yeah, and maybe we would have found a different producer to do that kind of change with. But, you know, it is what it is. We did what we did. And um, it, the songs apparently are the most popular songs we have. You know, if you look at, like, Spotify numbers, these are the songs that people listen to the most. So, I mean, you know, if you look at it that way, then I guess there's really, truly, like, you know, we don't play those songs live. We never do. Really? Yeah, we never play. We never play Remove Yourself. We don't play Down. You don't play Blood? We play Blood. Blood is the most popular because it got on this playlist. Yeah. I'm very, I feel, I'm very proud that that one got on the playlist because that's the only one of the popular songs we play. Um, We don't play Without Water. We don't play any. What? We don't play those rock songs. Carly don't want to play them. Without Water is not a rock song. He didn't want to, he don't want to do it. He never wanted to do them. He'd be like, nah, that's whack. (laughs) But, uh, you know, whatever it is, what it is. Um. Uh, you know, these, these, I don't know, these changes, they needed to happen, you know, and they were, you know, you know how it is. Changes is, is a very uncomfortable thing. You know, it's not, it's never an easy thing. Well, I it changes, you know? Yeah. I, well, I, have, I have my own kind of relations to that, but even, even before I, I get into that, I, I actually still want to kind of talk about the after effects of the accident and kind of mentally, you know, how that um, affected you personally, but also w- like how did that filter into what you're going to do next? Because I, it almost felt like, and this is completely outside looking in, even though I'm friends with you guys, it's not like I, you know, we're backstage at a show and I'll interview you or something. It's it's more like, you know, I'm still perceiving it almost as a, not even almost, but I'm perceiving it from the perspective of a fan of like, when I heard what doesn't kill you, it was almost like, you know, it seemed like, collectively even if you were resisting to some of it it was like you know what life is short do it do the shit you want to do and and so in another way that was a kitchen sink record in a different kind of way right um so what i mean what was just your perception of like like the mentality of what the band was in your life before that and then after that like did the priorities shift as far as like what you wanted out of life or like for everyone? Um, yeah, it was definitely like a wake up call for all of us. I mean, we had signed this deal with Lakeshore Records um, and it was a big, huge deal. And we were not only were we sign, signing a record deal, they were also giving us our own record label. We were, we were going to be able to sign our own bands, put out records. They were going to fund the whole thing. It was like a dream come true, basically. Um, they started giving us scripts. Um, to actually, they gave me the Underworld script, the original Underworld movie. Nice. Yeah, they gave me that script. I, I never got to write for it because we got hit by a damn truck, but <laughs> um, they did. They were handing us scripts and everything. Um, <clears throat> so it was a really, really exciting time. And then when the accident happened, um, that kind of put everybody sort of like made everybody think a little bit more seriously about things um, and think about family, think about their future, think about money. Um, and, uh, yeah. And, and I think before the, before the accident, you know, anything was possible, you know, sky's the limit. We could do anything. We're invincible. Get hit by the truck. Everyone starts thinking about family. Everybody starts thinking about the future, like yeah. the future, future, you know, cause we were all surviving on whatever little money we could make from tour, you know, and, uh, just getting by. And I think 
that's the thing. When when something like that happens, when you cl- come close that close to dying, you start to look around you at the people that you love, and you start to look around you, and you start to you know if you have a, a significant other, and they and you know and the conversation about having a kid or having a family one day ever came up, it's going to come up even even more now. You know what I mean? They're going to be like, yo, you need to start thinking about this. You need to start thinking about that. So a lot of people in the band's sort of thought process as far as the rest of their lives are concerned definitely changed. And then our situation changed because that Lakeshore deal that we signed quickly went away. They decided that we would never be the same band. We were going to, you know, we would never be the same. And uh, they sort of slowly backed out of that agreement. And um, we were we were stuck. We were pretty much stuck with with no record deal, um, no money, no prospect of of any touring because we were hurt. The only thing we could do was write. Um, and uh, but we needed money. We needed some way, shape or form to sort of fund pre-production. And um, we were looking for a deal. So our then management team started hunting around. We went to Roadrunner. They wouldn't they barely offered us anything. Anywhere we turned, they were barely offered us. It was like we were just getting these crappy offers. But then uh, Type A Records came along, uh, David Bendeth, and uh, he offered us a substantial amount of money to sort of get out of our deal with Lakeshore. And also there was some money left over for an advance to just keep us basically alive and get through whatever, however many months and do some pre-production stuff. Um, and that's really that was a real big factor in why the record sounded the way it sounded, because the deal was he would sign the band, but he was going to be the producer. That was the deal. Mm-hmm. And um, so that really changed a lot. And it, and that's really a huge part of the reason why What Doesn't Kill You um, kind of took that crazy sort of shift direction wise, because, you know, he uh, was convinced that he could, you know, make the band into something that could sell more records and, and like gain a wider audience, so to speak. And, you know, there were guys in the band that were all about it. And then there were guys in the band that were just like, Whoa, what the hell is this going on here? You know, but truthfully, Carly was really inspired and he was really psyched about it. And he had a great amount of respect uh, for, you know, for David Bendeth and uh, for him, it was this great treat to work with him. Um, So, you know, in hindsight, I'm, I'm very grateful like that, you know, I look back and I'm like, you know, this might've been a tough record for me to make. And I was, I feel like I was pushed in directions sort of as a musician that I didn't want to go. But at the same time, you know, you're in a band, it's a band, it's, it's like a group effort thing. It's never about one person. And I think like, it took a lot of like years of me to kind of understand that I was being sort of um, selfish in a way and just mm-hmm. not saying, ah, you know what, you guys, you guys have this vision and I don't even have a vision. You guys do. So let me be like a team player and just back you up. Um, but it takes years to learn that kind of sort of, I, I think it takes years for a musician to mature to that point where they can take a back seat comfortably and play a support role and just be really happy about that. You know, like, cause I play in um, another band called green lady and um, it's a f- like alt country folk psych rock. It's definitely not sort of um, my, it's not, I'm I'm out of my comfort zone, which I really enjoy with this band that I play in. Um, But I'm I'm playing a support role. I don't write any music. I just, you know, I'm told the chords and and my job is to come up with parts that complement and support the the song. And it's really nice. It's a real comfortable thing for me to do at this point in my life as a musician, you know? Yeah. um, There's so much there. 
<laughs> to, to respond to. No, 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 because I'm 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 thinking about that idea of that bands are collectives, right? And sometimes I'll hear criticism of you know a, a band I'm working with, a band I'm in, and they'll go, "Oh, what this band did this on this record, and I don't like that, or I don't like this song." And what they don't realize is people in the band probably some people in the band probably agree with them but because bands it's not like every single person likes every single idea it's sometimes it's like you'll get a criticism you're like yeah i i kind of don't like that song either but you can't go you can't go and say that <laughs> because we have to be a united front and and go listen it, it there's within that context there's going to be compromises and you're not always going to get what you want but if it was just what you wanted, then you would it would be a solo band, but it's not. The whole point is it's that it's a reflection of what everyone wants. And I'm 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 a big proponent of the uh, the productive argument, meaning meaning like, okay, if you want thing A and I want thing B, let's actually have the conversation about why you should get your way or I should get my way and work it out and go, you know, you, you should have a rationale <laughs> as to why you want, what this thing. So sometimes I think, um, in, in band scenarios, people get a little annoyed at me for that, for like one, always wanting to have the conversation, but I'm like, we, you know, you, sh if your idea is better, you should have a reason why, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you a thousand percent, man. I mean, I think, um, when you reach a certain level um, and you're a musician for a long period of time or an artist or, or any, in any aspect of life, um, you get to a point where those type the, the, that type of communication becomes key to, to like having a great experience, like making a record. Like uh, the last record we made uh, while they were sleeping was probably the greatest experience making a record with Candiria because me, I've never been more, not necessarily on the same page with the people I was working with, but we were all open-minded enough and we were all um, receptive and, and, and other people's ideas as wild as they, as they may be, because, you know, making a record with Carly Coma, you better fucking buckle up because that dude is going to throw some crazy shit your way. And, and he always does. He always, he always challenges you. And, and it's sometimes it's frustrating. Sometimes you're like, why are we doing this? You know, I don't get, I don't get any of this. What, what are you talking about? Like he wrote this whole, story this grab he basically wrote a, a novel like a, a, a i don't know if it was a novel that's a bit much but he basically wrote a graph not a graphic novel a novella maybe let's call it a novella okay uh, but he did he wrote a story and it took him about a year to write just the story alone and then what he wanted to do was for the band to write music so that he could sort of take this story and kind of put that to music which is an insane fucking idea well, it's a it's a concept album. It's not the not the first time it's happened. No, but I mean to Candiria music. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was like I, you know, I mean, look, it was just so hard to understand because I didn't I didn't know what the story was. I, I didn't fully understand what was going on. There's all these different characters, and then we're writing songs, and he'd be I hear him singing about like. Uh, this woman Norea and, and and all of these different things and and then the next song there'd be this guy named Oren and, and there's all these different things happen I'm like why why doesn't any of this make any sense and he's like well the thing you don't understand is the first song we wrote we wrote Norea and that song is about this that happens at this point in the story 
And he goes, in that third song we wrote, that's the beginning of the story. I'm like, yo, this is completely fucked up. I can't, I, I don't understand any of this. I, I can't see it. And then finally, it wasn't until um, I heard the song fully laid out, mastered, and I listened to it one day. I was like, oh my God, it all makes sense now. <laughs> fucking sense from front to back. This guy knew all along that this was going to make sense. And I was, I was blown away by that. Um, but getting back to that idea of like, you know, being, being in a band and, and maturing enough to know that like, it's time to kind of like be, you know, supportive and not necessarily like, you know, tame the ego basically. Um, and, and having those conversations, like you said, that, that really kind of will help guide you to make those decisions, you know, and, and later on be confident about them, you know, cause I think that's important too. Yeah. I mean, it's so, it's so tough. You know, because coming from the same scene as we did, despite, you know, sounding very different, um, the, you know, there's a lot of parallel conversations around philosophy, right? Of is it just art or where does the commerce comes in? Because at the end of the day, if you're not selling records, if you're not selling tickets, if you're not selling T-shirts, you don't really get to do it, at, at least not at the level that you're maybe accustomed to. And, you know, I feel like a lot of those same, you know, maybe we had a lot of those same conversations as God forbid changed and got more commercial sounding. And I, you know, and I, but I don't, I don't have any real reservations about it because I felt like, I just think you have to, if you feel the need to change, you have to do it. I think you, I think you're like robbing yourself, like, I almost feel like there's two kinds of selling out. There's the selling out where, yes, you do the obvious like commercial grab that's cynical and kind of, um, you know, completely choreographed. And then there's the selling out where you don't do things artistically, like where you stay in your box because you think you're going to piss people off or you think you're going to lose your fan base. And I've seen that within our world where bands don't change because they're worried about their bottom line. You know what I'm saying? So, and I think that's talked about less and you, and I think you can hear it in the music where, like you said, where you, you throw the kitchen sink and there's really nothing left. All you can do is repurpose the old shit and, but it's like a drug. It doesn't hit the same way as it did five years ago, because when you first did it, it was fresh and raw and new. And now you're trying to rehash the same shit it just doesn't it doesn't hit the same way so you even if you know i just feel like you have to just keep moving you have to keep finding something that gets you excited or else you're going to be exposed for for that it'll it'll it always you know if you're actually paying attention to the actual work and the and the and the the, the end product you'll you can tell when there's a creative fire and there's something like the, the artist has something to say that's interesting or at least authentic, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny you say that because um, I, I brought up this idea to my bass player, Mike, and we had this conversation about like, there are a few bands that exist that can go past five albums without yeah. starting to just fall off. You know what I mean? Like, I, I I challenge you to think of a band that has more than five albums. It's very rare. 
Yeah. But after that fifth album, the band is still making music that is like, oh my God, this is absolutely fucking Well, there's, I think it's, you know, and we can probably like even point to some of those bands right now, whether it's Mastodon, who is probably the most consistent band in, in the entire genre. Gojira is at that point where they're still making things that is uh, vibrant, creatively opeth i think is another example of, of a band that's been consistent lamb of god has been very consistent um you know but there's all and it's funny thing you say the five records because i i think about five records it makes you think of like usually that takes about 10 years right and 10 years is like an era it's a it's a it's a good like like the beatles right the entire beatles catalog basically took place in like 10 years and they were and they we're able to make a lot more records because there was less touring and it was, and they, they stopped touring at a certain point. But I think there's like, you know, usually it's like your twenties, right? And then you hit 30 and now you're like, I'm in a different phase and I'm changing and I want different things. And to persevere through that, sometimes you're going to get that. Oh, the band makes that weird record or has a weird phase. And then, and you, you've seen that with the million bands or sometimes a band, they have to change because the style they were doing becomes out of fashion. And then they, then they, you know, it's like, oh, then we're doing our like industrial album <laughs> or our new metal album or our disco album. <laughs> yeah. Queen is a great example of that. Um, they were, I think, what song was it? The, the, the popular one with the, the, the fucking disco bass line. Um, damn. I Another one bites the dust? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That song, I mean, like that, that, you know, they fought about making that song. I mean, you know, the, the story goes that they didn't, they were like, we're going to do this disco thing. And then they did it and it became a hit. You know, bands do take chances and they do kind of change things up and they make these decisions. And sometimes it hits, like you said, sometimes it hits and sometimes it just doesn't. Sometimes it's a miss, you know, like you can kind of fall on your face doing that. So you are taking a chance. But I do agree with you a thousand percent. Like you have to change. An artist has to just follow kind of his heart in a sense. And I think bands have to follow their hearts too. Um, or form a new band and like, or certain members. Yeah. Well, like, and change it up in that regard. But the other element that this was kind of saying at the beginning of this point was about that business thing and the business part of it being that it's a band, it's an artist, but it's also a brand. And that like um, the drummer from three days grace said this thing he goes like uh, a band's brand is a promise to the fans of, of what the band's gonna sound like like so it's this idea that when i go to the store and i pick up the coca-cola it's gonna taste like coca-cola and so there so it is this this fine balance between those those two things if you understand like there is a priority on the business component that you go this is our career this is what we're going to be doing and of course if you're at a certain level where it is your career and it is how you how you 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 make your money i think there is that element of going at some point we have to think about who the who is consuming this you know not you know and it's, it's finding that balance i think you have some artists who seem to always make the fans happy but will tell you they don't care <laughs> i think they're i think that's a little bit of a lie <laughs> it's funny because two bands that come to mind are hatebreed and clutch yeah that just do, they've been doing their thing for years it works it seems to still work for them 
but there's still slight evolutions in both those bands. They're still they they still kind of there's little things they keep slight though, man. Yeah, slight, slight. Like Clutch is still doing really the gist of it is the same thing. You know what yeah. I mean? But you're right. There have been changes here and there, but not much. Hey, listen to old Clutch though. Way different. Yeah, maybe production wise. No, dude, it's dip that little put in all the asphalt. They were like a, almost a hardcore band. They they changed quite a bit. They turned, you know, this like ZZ Top Boogie Woogie thing they're doing now, which I it's great. <laughs> I mean, they're a phenomenal band, man. I I actually I'm I'm very uh you know, when we were doing the tours with Clutch, it was a big thrill for me. And I'm very upset that no one ever got, this is pre-cell phone era. I mean, well, right around the time when you had flip phones or whatever. But every night um, at the end of the clutch set, uh, Neil would pass his guitar off to me and I would do like some jamming with those guys. And it was a great thrill for me, man, to be a clutch fan and for every night to be that guy, like John Paul, jam, like to jam with those guys and Neil handing me his guitar. Come on, man, that's, that's some fucking cool shit. Um, Very cool. so of course, there's no no recordings of that. No one got any of that down. <laughs> it's like, um, but uh, I think the essence of the band is still there, uh, more so than a band like, which is crazy to say this, but Metallica, the biggest band, basically the biggest rock band in the world at this point, right? I mean, they're just they're they're like they're massive, and um, but they've made real big changes. That's a really yeah. strange thing, right? Well, I. I think it's to some degree why Metallica is Metallica, right? Like if they didn't make the Black Album after and Just For All, they're not the biggest band of all time. If they didn't make that, you know, they, and they've been to some degree the um, the leader on that, right? You know, and, and going, it, like think about it. Like there is a band that put out four all-time classic records of the 80s right and we're kind of like at, at and just for all essentially they were like the same size of like a pantera or a slipknot they were that band for that era right the the big hard band and then put out the big record of the 90s the biggest record of the 90s while all their peers were like falling off right um and then record in the nineties, it wasn't never mind. No, I mean the uh, the black album is the biggest album of the SoundScan era. Period. It's it's SoundScan like seventeen million copies or something. I think never mind has sold like ten million, but it's it's really? like not it's not even close. No, oh. um, so it's, so it's um, you know never mind is given the the credit as being kind of the cultural touchstone of the nineties. And you know, and, and in in some ways, like the the black album, is 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 an outlier, right? It almost there's there's no like for example, there's no direct influence for like younger bands of the black album immediately after its release. You you don't see band, bands kind of ripping off the black album till like ten years late. It's it's a weird, it, it's a very it's a very strange strange thing, but. But their willingness to to just go, we're gonna do what we want to do, and even you and you take that even all the way to Saint Anger, right? As crazy as that record sounds, and as kind of uh, abrasive as it is, and raw, and you know whether you like it or not, 
their willingness to just put that out. Right. Their willingness to do the documentary and show themselves not in the most positive light um, in a very vulnerable space is a reflection of that. It's a it's a very warts and all type of um, honesty. Yeah. Right. And, and, uh, and it wound up working for them, man. I mean, you know, obviously, obviously it did. Obviously it really did. Um, but, you know, that goes kind of goes back to the five albums thing. I mean, I don't know how how big a fan you are to uh, of like the St. Al- Anger record and the records that came after that. But I mean, really, sort of after the Black album, that was kind of it. They're never going to beat the first five. As good as anything that might come after it, there's just something that happens. Like, I think I think you only get, like you said, like you, you're, you're, I think your sound is, is connected to an era. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's part of well, that bands sort of create this legacy in this particular time frame, and it's usually a certain amount of albums. And then after that, things change, and that band is no longer well. They're just not as relevant. Yeah. Well, I think you can find different peaks. So, you know, if Metallica plays, you know, Fuel at a at a show or King Nothing, that's as big a pop as any other song, right? And those are off the records after that. And then that the new record, if they play Hardwired or Spit Out the Bone, or you know, um, what was that? Well, uh, the the other big one? Um, there's another big single off that, that record, but I put those songs up with the best Metallica songs ever, and they're doing that 35 years in the 40 years in the career, and but it but it wasn't like a a straight line, right? There's a lot of movement with, with with that and that and that's like the, it's almost like a, a married couple right like if you can survive past a certain amount of point then all of a sudden you find a new kind of uh space of 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 uh love and continuity and understanding but you have to get through this rough patch right um and so just that that surviving and kind of figuring that all, all that out and it's you know and, and to some degree bands like metallica are and you know, and I guess their predecessors, the Black Sabbaths and Iron Maidens and Judas Priest, of like, how long can you keep this going, and how long can you be relevant and put it? And and those bands, they never stop putting out records. Like they still, it still matters to them. Um, and whether we want to go to the show and just see Painkiller or you know the Trooper, the fact that they, it's still important to them to feel artistically viable is still like because like i said they don't iron maiden doesn't ever ha- have to put another record out acdc doesn't have to put out another record but they want to and they think it's important to uh existing as like just an artist and ju- not just being a a legacy act you know yeah 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 and you know it's funny man i mean that that acdc record i have to say man um my friend joe malazzo he's he's one of the um artists in that band green lady i mentioned <laughs> He is a diehard metal fan. And when I say metal, I mean like he's into most most metal. He's open-minded to it. But like when it comes to the classic bands like Judas Priest and Maiden, Metallica, and like ACDC, he's just he follows. He keeps up. And uh when he played some of that, he played some of the new ACDC record. And I have to say, man, it sounds incredible. It yeah. sounds great. Um, but I'm maybe I'm I'm just I don't know. Not jaded is the word, but I, I, you know, give me, give me, I want the classics, you know, I'm, I'm bad like that, you know, I, and yet you won't play without water and you won't play remove yourself, but you want, when you go see your favorite band, you want 
the classics. I see how it is. I like this hypocrisy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, you're right. Um, <laughs> there are certain bands that I follow that I I, I follow. Like you know, I'm 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 a fan of like uh, I like Radiohead. I like um, Mogwai. There are bands that I keep up with that I I don't that I don't want to hear the classics. I want to hear the new stuff. You know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man. I mean, oh god, <laughs> where were we anyway? Oh no, oh no, we're just we're just kind of riffing on this idea of uh, creative peaks and how you can kind of you know if, if that idea of the the ten year cycle or the five album cycle of of a peak and bands that somehow thwart that and and continue to thrive despite being bands for 20, 30 years. Um, listen, it's always it's always impressive. Um, or even like when bands break up and come back out, like Carcass, for example, you know, was broken up for, I don't know, 15 years and then put out two records that are just as vital as any of their previous material. And you're like, how is that even possible? <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm amazed uh, that, that sometimes maybe that break actually gives them the creative energy because they didn't. They weren't just grinding it out. They actually had the space to want to do the band and want to kind of express themselves in the form of that band. Um, yeah, it's a really good point you make, man. And that is definitely relative to like I can totally relate to that. Um, and and the last sort of um, iteration of Candiria, what we were doing was just um, it was it was unsustainable. Yeah, and. Um, it just, we, we just, it was just impossible to do, you know, we just couldn't do it. Five guys on the road in a van, like no one was making any money. It's not like money is the most important thing, but if you can't pay your bills, you, it's obviously you can't, you, you don't, you're not going to live on the streets and like be a musician. You have to be able to pay the bills. And we, we weren't, we weren't making enough money. And, uh, so things, things really did have to change. And unfortunately, Candiria was only willing, could only exist this way. So yeah. it was either exist this way and which was unsustainable or don't exist at all. And, um, but now with what I'm doing, um, I'm, I'm doing it in a way that it's like, it's sustainable. It's there's, a, there's this, I don't know. It's just, there's this realistic aspect of it. It's um, a lot of work and, but we're putting a lot of work into, you know, into what sort of works. We're not going to jump on the road and, you know, go out and play a bunch of dates in front of like, you know, if it doesn't make sense financially to do that instead we'll work hard at home we'll make some like live video things we'll do a bunch of interviews we'll make videos we'll put money into you know boosted posts and just working with the tools that we have and it, and things have been going great you know um if only we would have taken that attitude <laughs> during the last candiria album who knows what would have happened you know yeah i mean it's i got to see the band and in la um on that on, during that run and it was i was actually blown away by you know especially you think of candira you think of ken you know it's hard it's difficult to to kind of imagine that and, and have you know it's a few different members coming in but it was the band sounded as as good as ever i was i was really blown away with the performance and it was like exciting you know and, and and like i said the fact you guys actually put out a really really strong record um and i think you know like uh kiss the lie was it's funny you you talk about what doesn't kill you being a little too far you know a little different that record like 
I remember listening to it and it was like, this doesn't even sound like Candiria to me. Like it was like even further down that that rabbit hole. Whereas I feel like um, the last record felt like a return to form for me. Right. Well, what happened with, with Kiss the Lie was that music was written for the purpose of that music was originally to be for that was going to be like my Spilacopa record. Mm. But what happened was, you know, what doesn't kill you came out. I left the band and wanted to do my own Spilacopa stuff. And I was on that journey. And then I forget how long I was out of the band. I think it was like eight months. And then they finished doing whatever touring stuff they were doing. And Ken decided he was going to leave the band. He was going to move to LA and he was done. And, um, but before he was going to leave, Carly wanted to make one more record. Carly was doing everything in his power to keep everything together. Yeah. And uh, so both Carly and Ken came to me and they were like, look, we want to make one more record. We want to, this is the deal. Ken's leaving, but we want to make one more record. Will you write the record with us? And I was honored, completely psyched because I felt like this is an opportunity for some type of redemption and and sort of like maybe not necessarily return to form, but another opportunity to make a record with Candiria that I could be really, really psyched about. Um, and but then the, then Ken delivered the news that he was like, OK, well, you got three weeks <laughs> and he goes and we start pre-production in two. And I was like, I have two weeks. I don't have any music. What the hell? <laughs> and then I was like, they were like, well, what do you have? And I was like, well, I have all of this shit that I wrote for Spila Copa. And they were like, good enough. Let's go with that. So that was it. That's how it happened. It's an, it's all a different tuning. It's all these different riffs. It's a different direction. But we took those, a, at least five of those songs were like just ideas that I had from my own stuff. And we just took that. We brought it in the studio. We started working with it, like rearranging it a little bit differently. Carly started writing for it. And then eventually we wound up working more and more and we wound up getting enough drum tracks down so that Ken could leave and we, we can continue working in the studio and building an album. So that's the really, you know, to me, Kiss the Lie is like, that's the miracle. That's the like the record to me that's just like, I can't even believe that shit got made. The fact that it exists. <laughs> it, it, the fact that it exists and it's actually, to me, it's really good. It's like a heartfelt record. It, it's very personal to me. Um, I know Carly was going through some real heavy personal stuff, which he was able to really sing about and, um, and get a lot out of you know like i was talking earlier about that like therapy you know what i mean that whole thing um there's some really beautiful stuff on there and a lot of the songs that that dude i mean his vocals on that record are like my favorite yeah i i really do think there's some beautiful moments for him on that album um the opening track is to me a standout and well, i gotta give it a re-listen you know now i feel bad <laughs> no, no 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 don't feel bad it's there i love the fact that it's like this uh you know who really loves that record? Jesse from Killswitch. Right on. I'm really, really like when we, I were having, I see him every now and again, hanging around. And um, last, one of the last conversations I had with him, he brought up Candiria and, and we talked about, I forget how it came up, but he was like, yo, Kiss the Live, man. That's the one for me. I was like, oh, really? And he's like, yeah, that's, that's the one. That's my favorite. I'm like, dude, you don't understand how much that means to me. Cause it's really like, if I had to pick a record that I, that I feel I'm, that I'm the most proud of, it would be that one because I know the circumstances of how that shit was made and it was not an easy thing to pull off. Yeah. And, uh, so I'm, I'm proud of it in that way. Um, anyway, I don't know how <laughs> we got here. Well, no, I'm glad, I'm glad we talked about that because I, 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 I wanted to talk about that record and, it, it, and, and just the, you know, cause I think it's, it's relevant to our previous kind of thing we were talking about 
like I said, the five records and the changing and the experimenting and coming, you know, and then maybe you veer off and then maybe you come back. And it's this this whole kind of put push and pull. Um, and actually, just I had, I had one one last question. Like, so Spilacopa, is that a solo project as well? Well, okay. So this this new record that I just put out initially, it was just going to be it, not just another Spilacopa record, but it was going to be a record put out under that moniker. Um, and, uh, that was just, I was just continuing on doing what I do, you know, and I was like, all right, it's time to switch gears and make a Spilacopa record. But then, you know, a label came along and Chris Enriquez management came along. Um, and, and these guys started to, you know, talk to me about like, how are we going to market this? How are we going to, what do you think, you know, we're going to use the Spilacopa name. Why don't you use a different name? And I think, um, you know, Rob Gross, uh, I'm not, not Sounds familiar. He was at uh, BMI. Okay. He works for a marketing company, but he had a conversation. Um, Chris Enriquez had a conversation with him, and I have to credit him with with coming up with this idea. Um, Chris and Chris was telling him, "Oh, I'm, I'm managing John Lamacchia from Candiria now." And Rob expressed, you know, his his love for the Candiria records, and he also expressed like this great appreciation for for the Spilacopa stuff. And Chris was like, "Yeah, he's going to put out a new record," and he was like, and Rob was like, "Yo." He goes, honestly, I think that dude needs to start rebranding and he needs to start thinking about the way he's going to present his, his new music because just to cut through the noise, like to cut through it, maybe the guy should start using his own name. And then Chris came back to me with that. And at first I was really like, I was kind of annoyed. I'm like, who the fuck, what, who the fuck is this guy? You know, but I, I don't know. I, I asked a few people about it. And um, a lot of people came back with like, nah, dude, keep the Spilacopa name and keep it. It's a good name. It's cool. You, you built the history with it. But then I couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop thinking about this idea that like, you know, every time I put out a record, every time Spilacopa put out a, a record, no matter how far away, how, how long ago it was that Greg was involved, Greg Pucciato was involved, the first thing that comes up is Greg and Julie Christmas and Jeff Kashid from ISIS. And these people were, have not been involved for at this point for a decade or more. And I love all those guys. They're all still my friends, very close friends, but I just couldn't pull away from that. And, and that was the thing that kind of like, I was like, that's the thing, man. I want I want people to stop thinking about other people when, when I put out a record. This is yeah. my solo project. And I'm just tired of, of these names coming up that really are not, they're not relevant to this project anymore. So I was like, I was like, that's it. I'm convinced that this is the way to go. And, I, and I, I, it was actually at that point where Chris kind of doubled back and he's like, dude, I talked to a couple of people and they were like, no, keep the name, keep Spilacopa. And I was like, hell no, we're not. We're moving on from that shit. Um, so, which I'm really glad because for some reason people are responding a little bit differently to this, you know? Um, people, I think people do recognize it now fully as like, this is his thing and no one else. So um, I think it was a really good move and, and I feel good about it. Well, right on, man. Um, I'm really excited for you. I'm I'm really glad we got to kind of take take a trip down memory lane, kind of scratch some of the itch of some of these questions I, I I've had for so long. Because I'm, I'm I'm such a fan, um, and it's just amazing, man. You're you just you just constantly it's your body of work. Actually, when you kind of zoom out, is pretty intense. <laughs> you know the 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 fact that you you've been this pr productive th throughout the years and you just keep doing things is is amazing and I'm just glad we've uh been able to be friends through all this and and stay connected and uh 
and yeah, man, it's just just amazing. And I hope to get to see you soon, hopefully with this project or just anything or just hang out and get coffee or something. Hell yeah, man. Yo, Doc, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, on the flip side, you know, watching you do your thing, man, it's it's amazing, man. I'm so, I'm really happy for you. I'm glad, uh, God forbid, is going to do a little bit of work or who knows, maybe there's more in store, but you're always doing such impressive shit, man. And I'm really happy to catch up with you. Same. I hope I get to see you. I know you're out in L.A., obviously. Yeah, I think I'm going to be out. I'm going to be on the East Coast, I think, either end of this month or beginning of May or something for maybe four or five days, but we'll, we'll see. All right, yo, man, hit me up. Sounds good. Yeah. Be good, brother. Thank you so much. Thank Bye-bye. you. I appreciate it. Bye-bye.
you just heard While We Were Sleeping, which is the title track from the most recent Candiri album, which came out in 2016. Great song. Love the production on it. They killed it. I would have played one of John's solo tracks, but all the advanced stuff they sent me was all locked up. Wasn't ready for public consumption yet. But uh, that comes out May 20th. The album is entitled Thunderheads, and that's on Aqualam Records. So be on the lookout for some tracks they'll be putting out, maybe some videos. We'll see. And, of course, support the record and check it out. And I hope you enjoyed my conversation with John. Uh, Brilliant musician, really thoughtful guy, uh, someone I've just always had a lot of admiration for. And you know me, I love having people on the show that, I have a history with and yeah, just any, any excuse to have these, these conversations because a lot of these questions that I ask don't feel appropriate when we're just hanging out <laughs> at a show. I don't go into interview mode and, and start uh, kind of scratching the itches of my curiosity where it makes sense. So that was a lot of fun. Thank you, John. Um, and the record's really cool. It's very cool. Different, very different than Candiria. So hopefully I didn't uh, throw you off the scent with the Candiria stuff. But, you know, we we talked a lot of Candiria, so I guess it is appropriate. But uh, as far as what's going on with me, it's late right now, finishing up this episode, having a good time. I, I it, it ran late because today was the first day of the NBA play-in tournament. And I haven't watched a lot of basketball this year because I've been so busy. And the, you know, the season... It's a little weird. I feel like every time I watch the game, half the good players are missing. It wasn't that fun. It was a weird Knicks season. But now I'm off tour. The playoffs are about to start. So you boys are going to be watching a lot of a lot of hoops. So so come follow me on Twitter, at Doc Coyle, and uh, talk shit about some hoops coming up. But, yeah, we like I said, we have some great guests coming up. I'm going to get back on things, going to you know get back into the swing. And... Yeah, excited to be back. I hope you're excited to enjoy the show again. I've had people hit me up asking when the next show is coming out. So here it is. I love you guys. And Mamba's out. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.